Scripture reading this morning will be from Matthew 24. If you find that, you can stand. Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if one says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise who will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Let's pray. God, we again thank you for the things that you have revealed to us, Lord, for our encouragement and that we would also, Lord, be admonished to be eager, waiting, and ready for the soon return of Christ. I pray, God, that you would just strengthen our hearts as we think on what is yet to be, and that our hope, Lord, would truly be secure in Christ, who is our Savior, hope, and life. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Um, a few weeks ago, I started this series on um, the rapture, and one of the things that I've been trying to, to, to point out is there is a distinction in Scripture between the literal coming of Christ to the earth and His coming in the air for the church. And so sometimes as Christians, we refer to them both as the second coming of the Lord, and that can get a little confusing, because the Lord comes in the air for His people, the church. And then he will later come to the earth to judge the nations and to establish his own kingdom. And so the principal passages that deal with the rapture of the church are 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've already looked at those. Matthew 24 um, in particular, as well as its joining chapter, chapter 25, are sometimes also looked at as rapture passages. 
It's my belief that Matthew says nothing about the rapture. He does speak about the second coming of Christ, and he's speaking about him coming to the earth, not in the air, to gather his people. The context of this, as you remember from last Sunday, is that Jesus has already pronounced his woes against the Pharisees, and he has said that um, Jerusalem will be left desolate, and that he will not come again until Jerusalem, or Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus. And as they, he and his disciples have left Jerusalem and gone up on the Mount of Olives, and they're looking back over the city, um, there's probably been some conversation led by the disciples on how wonderful the city is, and in particular the temple and all of its buildings. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, as far as that building goes, not one stone will be left upon another. Well, that generated some questions. When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? So in Matthew, um, Matthew has chosen not to deal with the first question. When will be the destruction of Jerusalem? Luke deals with that. Jesus answered it. Matthew just didn't record it. So Matthew is focusing on the second question or two questions. What is the sign of the end of the age and the sign of your coming? And so as we looked at this last week, in the first 14 verses here, seems to be an overview leading into the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And so in Matthew 24, 1 to 8 seems to be the first half of the tribulation, and then Matthew 9 to 14 would seem to be the second half of the tribulation, and then beginning in verse 15, still talking about the second half of the tribulation, going into more detail. And so, I'm just about to get there, just still doing some review. The last thing he said there in 13 and 14, though probably the most problematic statements, the one who endures to the end, he is the one that shall be saved. And we need to remember the word saved in the Greek is a very broad word. It does not always refer to the forgiveness of your sins. It can mean deliverance or escape from times of trial. That seems to be what he's speaking of here. The context is tribulation and enduring that tribulation. And then the gospel of the kingdom shall not, it's going to be preached throughout the whole world, and then the end will come. The gospel of the kingdom is not identical with the gospel of salvation. It would include the gospel of salvation, but you can preach salvation and not preach the coming kingdom of the king. And so the point is the gospel of salvation is the message that Jesus Christ came the first time, died for our sins, and rose again from the dead. That when we refer to the gospel, normally that's what we're thinking of. The gospel of the kingdom is that plus the king who gave himself for you and rose again from the dead is coming again to establish his kingdom. And that itself is a message or a gospel of good news, particularly for the Jewish people. It is huge, hard to overestimate how big this is in their minds, the kingdom, because they know that all the Old Testament prophecies, the Old Testament covenants, all pointed to there there was going to be a future kingdom for Israel and that there would be a king who would reign over that kingdom forever. And so they're wondering, when is that going to happen? They're living in the time that the scripture calls the age or the time of the Gentiles. 
But the scripture says that time is coming to an end. They're wondering when that's going to happen. When is Jesus going to establish his kingdom? It's the last question they ask Jesus before he ascends into heaven. Is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And so that's what's on their minds. And that is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus is referring to. They will be preaching throughout the whole world that Jesus is coming a second time prior to his return. Now, having said that, Jesus wants to go into more detail concerning um, his second coming and particularly the events of the last half of the tribulation. And it starts off with the abomination of desolation, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel. Now, it's good that Daniel spoke about this. Daniel will tell us it's a person and it's something that he does in a place. The place being Jerusalem. Now, I'm glad that Daniel elaborated on this, and there's more in the New Testament about it, because if we didn't know what the place of the abomination of desolation was, we'd be left to our imaginations. And mine would take me to my daughter's bedroom. The abomination of desolation, I think, whenever I walk through that door. But it's not my daughter's bedroom. It is Jerusalem, and it's the place of the temple. And she's not the Antichrist. Um, (laughs) Though I am getting the evil eye from all over there. Look with me to Daniel chapter 9. This is a very helpful passage to go to. Daniel chapter 9. Beginning in verse 24. I've alluded to this, made some reference to it in passing a few times now, so it would be helpful to look at it a little more in depth. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24. This is one of the the prophecies that's been given to Daniel. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now that's a lot that's going to happen during those 70 weeks. So the first thing to note here is this is not 70 literal weeks. The number 70 is literal, but weeks is not. The weeks is a figure being used in Daniel for a seven-year period of time. And so basically over 490 years, all of these things listed in verse 24 are going to take place. Now, there is a school of prophecy called preterism that says that basically everything has already been fulfilled and it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Well, if that's true, then everything in verse 24 should have already happened, and we know that it's not, as well as everything in chapter 24 of Matthew, and it has not. So he divides up this 70 weeks in three ways. So look at verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's when it starts. Okay. And and so that was an issue decreed by Cyrus, who was king of Persia. And we know the exact day that that decree was issued. 
And he says, so that starts the calendar. Okay? And so then he says, let's start moving forward. He says, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, so that's Jesus, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven and 62 together is 69. I went to public school. I can do that math. So why does he break it up, though? And it would seem because the, the seven weeks times seven is 49 years. That's essentially how long it took to restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But the full 69 weeks takes us all the way through to the crucifixion of Christ. In fact, it seems that on the very day that Jesus was entering Jerusalem and presenting himself as king, the day we call the triumphal entry, was the day that this prophecy comes to a conclusion. So if you count from from when Cyrus issued that decree and moved forward 483 years, it falls on the exact day that Jesus was presenting himself as king and they rejected him. Or in other words, they cut him off. And so it is very likely that the magi that came and visited Jesus at his birth, actually somewhere after his birth, before he was two years old, they were of the line or the, or the, or the class of, of people that Daniel was part of. Daniel was also part of the Magi. He was in the wise man class. And they probably, having such high regard for Daniel and the role that he played in that part of the world's history, they kept the book of Daniel and were very likely reading it and studying it. And they came to understand that in their generation, the Messiah would have to be born if he was going to soon be cut off. And that's why they were looking for the coming of the Messiah when they saw his star and they followed that star to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Bethlehem. So 483 years from the time of the issuing of the decree to the cutting off of the Messiah. Those are literal years. And so then all that's left is seven more years. Well, if it's a continual, uninterrupted 70 70 weeks, 490 years, well, then Jesus should have already come back again. But he didn't come back the second time. We didn't see the abomination of desolation. We didn't see all the things that are listed here and in Matthew 24. And so there is a break. There is a parenthesis between when the Messiah was cut off and when the last week of Daniel's prophecy begins. That last week is the seven-year tribulation that Matthew is now talking about. And so then it says in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, which is actually the end of the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Jesus was crucified, we think, in 33 AD. Seven years later is 40 AD. There is nothing of any significance that happened in 40 AD. Certainly, the city was not destroyed. That was in 70 A.D. So 70 A.D. cannot be the fulfillment of this prophecy. But though it does indicate to us 
that there is a period of time that functions as a parenthesis. That is the time we're living in now. It is the church age. Daniel didn't know anything about the church. Remember, the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. It is a New Testament revelation, a mystery unknown in the Old Testament. And so we wouldn't expect for Daniel to say anything about it. It hadn't been revealed to anyone. And then its end, the end of the city, the end of the sanctuary will come with a flood. Even to the end that there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many, this is with Israel, for one week, speaking of seven years. And in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So there is a temple and there are sacrifices. And halfway through, he goes, it's over. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24, 15. Coming back to Matthew. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You are three and a half years away from the end of this age and the coming of the second coming of the Messiah. So when you, if you happen to be in Jerusalem and the Antichrist is in the temple taking his seat as God and demanding to be worshipped, run for your life. That's Jesus' advice. Get out of the city at all costs. Don't stay there. So verse 16, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop Not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Whatever you're doing, drop everything and run. Because there is about to be a great bloodbath that's going to focus on the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. And it will extend to the Jewish people throughout the world. They are going, see, they're coming together now. And with the starting of this seven-year peace treaty, basically, it would seem most of the Jewish people in the world that have not yet already gone to Jerusalem are going to move to Israel once peace is guaranteed. Why wouldn't they? They're coming home. And so you have almost the entire world's population of Jewish people back in Israel for its first time of true peace. Only to three and a half years later, they're all together, and the Antichrist says, this is my chance, I'm going to kill them all. Why would he do that? This is where Revelation 12 is so significant. It would seem that that Satan takes literally the last thing Jesus said in Matthew 23. Go back to Matthew 23, okay? Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not, who's the you? You, Israel, shall not see me until you, Israel, says, blessed is he, who comes in the name of the Lord. 
That is what they said at the triumphal entry. But the leadership of Israel says, not so fast. And they rejected him. And now Jesus is saying, Israel will never see me again until Israel recognizes me for who I am. So the second coming of Christ, his literal coming to earth, is conditioned upon the Jewish people saying, Jesus is our Messiah and our King. And that's why Satan, for the last 2,000 years, has been so hell-bent on the absolute destruction of these people. He takes this as a literal prophecy. If all the other years of Daniel's prophecies are literal, why would this prophecy not be literal? Every prophecy in the Old Testament that has ever been fulfilled has been fulfilled without exception, literally. The devil does not spiritualize this prophecy. And the devil wants to rule. That's the whole purpose of the Antichrist. It is the devil has raised up a man to rule over this earth as a counterfeit of the reign of Christ. And now the devil is saying, this isn't coming to an end. And if the one thing that will bring my rule to an end is the Jewish people saying Jesus is king, because then Jesus will come back, well, then the simple thing is exterminate all the Jewish people. That's what's happening in the second half of the tribulation. The Jewish people are, are going to come close to being wiped out. He, the devil won't be successful, but that is his ambition. And in the, in the reason is so that he's trying to keep Jesus from being able to return. So then he says in verse 19, Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days, but pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be such a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. 70 AD was a horrible time for the Jewish people. And then around the turn of the century was another brutal time for the Jewish people where another Roman emperor comes in and, and, and totally disperses the Jewish people at the turn of the century. 70 AD, he destroyed Jerusalem. But the Jewish people, the Jewish state was still intact. But at the turn of the century, another Roman in general comes in and just decimates the entire country. No country left. Awful time. The Jewish people have seen worse. The Holocaust of World War II was worse than anything they saw in 70 A.D. or at the turn of the first century. Jesus says, that's why we know that whatever happened at those dates was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because Jesus says that what this tribulation that's coming will be worse than any other tribulation the Jewish people will ever go through. And they've been through worse. So 70 A.D., turn of the century, was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. The Holocaust was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. It's still coming. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Cut short can just mean not um, fewer days than what was originally planned, but rather just simply terminated. If the termination had not come of the Great Tribulation, if things had been allowed to continue as they were going, no human life would be left. That's how bad it's going to be. We've never seen a time like that. But that will be what characterizes 
this great tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. Verse 23, another sign. So what he's doing here is he's listing signs of the last three and a half years. The first sign of the last three and a half years, the abomination of desolation. The second sign now, verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe him. False Christ and false prophets will arise. So this is the second sign of the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. There will be false Christ and false prophets. We looked at this last week, and I noted that this is unique again to the Jewish people. If you don't even believe Jesus came for the first time, you're much more likely to be deceived about his coming the second time. And so these are the Jewish people in particular are looking for, Christians are not looking for the coming of Christ. He already came. And now we're, we're anticipating the rapture. And we are not likely as Christians to be deceived and get the, you know, a newsflash. Jesus is walking around in Israel again. Because that's not what Scripture indicates. The Scripture indicates that He will come the second time as He left in the sky for all to see. False prophets also is unique to Israel. There is no New Testament passage that refers to the church having false prophets. The church has false teachers. Somebody asked me last Sunday, well, what about the gift of prophecy? Great question. The offices, Old Testament offices of king, priest, and prophet were all three fulfilled in Christ. All three of them. So there is no person today with a gift of prophecy who is functioning as a prophet. The office of prophet, like the office of apostle, is closed. That's not to say that there is not a gift of prophecy, but there is no prophet today. Jesus is every prophet of the Old Testament focused on Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the prophetic office. Every king focused on Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the kingly office. And all priests were shadows of Christ, who is our high priest. Now, we are priests, Hebrews says that, but not according to Aaron and the law of Moses, but as Jesus, according to, if anything, the, the order of Melchizedek. Completely different kind of priesthood. We are not priests according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament offices of prophet, priest, and king are fulfilled in Christ. So when the Jewish people are looking for a prophet, they have set themselves up for deception. And that would apply to us as well. There is no office of prophet, priest, or king to be fulfilled today. It has already taken place. So then, behold, I tell you in advance, I told you in advance, if therefore they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go forth. Behold, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now he's getting more particular here. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. Interesting statement. It seems to be a statement of judgment. And, and, but now he wants to get to the final sign, and that being the actual sign of the Son of Man in the sky. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, so this is after the three and a half years, the sun will be darkened, 
The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, there's going to be a period of time at the end of the tribulation, the end of Daniel's 70 weeks, where everything is going to go pitch black. There will be no sun illuminating the day and no moon or stars illuminating the night. It won't be an eclipse. It's going to be much darker than an eclipse. No light whatsoever. None. We're not told how long that'll last. But the earth will be in such total darkness that there will be no natural explanation for it. The entire earth, totally dark. That will last probably more than a few days. Because again, this is a supernatural sign and it is the last sign prior to Christ coming to the earth. But then one more thing happens before he sets his feet on the ground. And that is verse 30. And then the last sign, the sun, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Every person is going to see it in the sky. If Jesus were walking around somewhere in Israel today, not every person could see him. But if he's in the sky, every person is going to see him coming. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. This is exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew. Go back one more time with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Here's an interesting thing. Verse 11. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, that's at the time of the abomination of desolation, according to chapter 9. From that time, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now that's an interesting number. It's not three and a half years. It's three and a half years and one month. Because normally a, a month was counted as 30 days. And so if you multiply 42 months, three and a half years, by 30 days, it's 1,260 days. What is the extra 30 days? Nobody knows. I'm wondering if it isn't the appearance of Jesus in the sky. Now, the, the, what's going to happen, keep in mind, the whole earth goes dark. Why would God do that? Because when the earth is going to, when the next thing happens, it will be the, the sign of the Son of Man, which I believe is the Shekinah glory. It is the glory of Christ, the light of God, illuminating this earth as it did in Genesis 1. Remember the first day of the creation? The earth was engulfed in darkness, and then there was light. Not sun, not moon, not stars, the light of God's presence. And had we been on earth, we would have been looking around going, this is wild. There is not a light source. No sun, moon, or stars. But the earth is illumined. 
It's the same thing in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. The new Jerusalem will be illuminated by the presence of God. So it says that even though there is sun, moon, and stars illuminating the rest of the world, new Jerusalem will be illuminated by the presence of God and it will never get dark in that city. Never dark. It seems that what God is saying here is that the earth is going to be illumined by the Shekinah glory and it could last, I think, at least a month. Why would God do that? One more chance for people to be saved. Even in judgment, this is the ultimate, final moment. He could just come straight to the earth. But it seems to be there is a long pause. Once again, demonstrating the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, that he doesn't desire for any to perish. And people have one more chance to be saved. And then still in Daniel, it says, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. That's another 45 days. We don't know why these numbers don't add up to exactly 1,260 days. So we're speculating here a bit. But we know he doesn't desire for any to perish. We also know that when Jesus actually comes to earth and begins to establish his kingdom... There are a number of things that have to take place. One, as he's saying here in verse 31 of Matthew, all the elect have to be gathered from all over the earth. Second, there's going to be a separating of sheep and goats. Third, there will be establishing of the administration of his kingdom. It could be, this is just speculation, that that will take 45 days. Where everybody that's still alive is going to be judged and his kingdom will be formally established. It can't happen in a few hours. It's probably going to take a few weeks, maybe up to 45 days. So my thought is on this, 30 days that the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the skies, giving people plenty of time to repent. And then the 45 more days, he is is doing all the preparatory work to establish his kingdom on earth. But during that time, there is no chance to be saved. Verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Remember, this is not the seventh trumpet. This is after the seven trumpets of Revelation. The tribulation is finished. Okay? Tribulation's over now. Jesus has appeared in the sky. And now, all of these believing Jews who have been scattered all through the world, they were together in Israel. And now, see, they've been scattered. He's bringing them all back together. And any other believers that are there as well, the elect, they're all being brought back together by by angelic um, means. They're being brought together. And now, very briefly, in the last part of the chapter, he just encourages us. So there's an application for us here, as well as an application to Israel, of what, how we should live in view of the things that he has been saying. He notes that 
these end times are something like a fig tree. And what he means by that, beginning in verse 32, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. I don't know anything about fig trees other than they have figs on them. But apparently, of fruit-bearing trees, the fig tree is one of the last in the spring to put on leaves. Most fruit trees put on leaves early in the spring. The fig tree puts on leaves late in the spring. So when you see a fig tree put on leaves, it is a sign to you that summer is very near at hand. They didn't have groundhogs to tell them when, you know, how long spring and winter is going to last. So this was one way to know how soon summer was approaching. His application is very simple. Verse 33. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In other words, the generation that sees the signs that he has just described will be the generation that sees him come to the earth. They're going to happen very shortly. Just as a fig tree puts on leaves, very shortly the summer comes. The people who see these signs will very shortly see the second coming of Christ. I think that's all he's saying. You know, there there are other interpretations. They're more complicated. And I think the safest thing, typically, when handling Scripture is go with the simplest interpretation. And that is the simplest I know of. The generation that sees the signs that Jesus just talked about will also see the second coming of Christ. We are not that generation. Now, if we see the, the Antichrist establishing himself as God, having first made a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, we are that generation. But we've not seen those things. So there's no reason for any people living today to think they are the generation of the Great Tribulation. Now, that is important because all across the world for the last 2,000 years, and every place where Christians have been heavily persecuted, they have always thought they were living through the Great Tribulation. They were always wrong. We may face a time of great tribulation as well. That could be. But we should not be deceived into thinking that we are about to see Jesus come to earth. Because until that seven-year peace treaty is made, and until the Antichrist breaks it right in the middle, we are not that generation. But should we see those? And personally, I do not believe we will, because I think that we'll be raptured. But... If we were to see those things, then I am wrong about the rapture, and we will, unless we're martyred, we will see the second coming of Christ. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Speaking of the, of the inerrancy of his words, and that they must be fulfilled. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Two things very quickly. 
Jesus, during his humanity, did not know when his second coming would be. He did not know the exact day or hour. He could have told you, just as we could, it'll be at the end of the 70th week of Daniel's prophecies. It'll be three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. He just told us all that. But even Jesus did not know the day or the hour. But he's God. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Amen. But in his humanity, he apparently at various times chose not to live as God. He limited the expression of his attributes. And, and this is one place where he did that. We also know this was true as he was an infant growing through being a toddler, young child, adolescent. The scripture says he grew in wisdom. Well, God can't grow in wisdom. He is wise. He is wisdom. He's all-knowing. So it doesn't speak of, of the deity of Christ when it says Jesus grew in wisdom. It's speaking of the humanity of Christ. Hebrews says that he learned obedience in the things in which he suffered. God can't learn. It's not that he isn't, you know, God can't, there's nothing for God to learn. He knows it all. And so again, that's not speaking of the deity of Christ. It has to be speaking of the humanity of Christ. So at this time that Jesus spoke this, he didn't know the day or hour. I would imagine he does now. The second thing is, it would seem that we can pretty well, once you start seeing these signs take place, you can pinpoint the year it's going to happen, that Jesus is going to come. Now, we can't do that yet. I think it was in 1988, somebody wrote a book, 88, or before in 1988, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 88. They were wrong 88 times. We don't know yet when this will be. But should we see these signs start to take place, you can do the math. And you can calculate it down to the year. You may even calculate it down to the month. But you will not be able to calculate it down to the day or the hour. Nobody knows. So again, this is a message for them primarily, those who will go through these things. But there's also an application for us. If that is true concerning the, the, coming, the second coming of Christ with all the information we have, and he's telling these people, be ready because you don't know when he's coming, how much more that would apply to us concerning the rapture when there is nothing that has to happen for the rapture to take place? Not a single prophecy has to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. So if those who go through the tribulation are to be ready, not knowing the day or hour, how much more we should be ready? Because we don't know the month, the year, even the decade, but we should be ready. Now, we are out of time already. I was really hoping to get through chapter 24 today. I hope that last Sunday. So we'll spend at least one more Sunday. We'll finish up 24 and 25 And look at these further signs and applications that are given to us concerning the truth of Christ soon coming. I want to finish, though, with with a quote, very brief quote from John Calvin and Martin Luther. These men did not believe 
that the church would be raptured before the tribulation. But they did believe Jesus is coming very, very soon. Martin Luther said, it beho- I'm sorry, John Calvin said, it behooves us to comfort ourselves at this day and to see by faith the near advent of Christ. Nothing more now remained but that Christ should appear for the redemption of the world. Martin Luther said, I think the last day is not far away. The world runs and hastens so diligently to its end that it often occurs to me forcibly that the last day will break before we can completely turn the Holy Scriptures into German. It's something. He says, I don't think we're going to finish translating the Bible into German before Jesus is going to come again. For it is certain from the Holy Scriptures that we will have no more temporal things to expect. All is done and fulfilled. Christ's coming is at the door. That's how we should be living. So that's a man who 500 years ago saying it could be any day. I don't know how you can read Scripture and not come away saying it is very soon and we need to be ready. I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for your holy word and for your wisdom, God, in revealing to us the things that you have. And we know, Lord, it is that we might not live lives of complacency, but that we would be ready, awaiting, faithful servants, knowing that if you said you will return, you will. And I do pray, God, that we would be found ready clean vessels, unashamed. We thank you, Father, that you will welcome us. But God, we know that it will be a a sobering thing to be ushered into the very presence of God. And I pray, Lord, that we would truly just be found walking in humility, in faith, in obedience, trusting in you moment by moment until that day comes. In Jesus' name, amen.